for tonight. So we're going to be continuing this series um, titled, Are We Okay? Just kind of thinking about looking out at the world and the problems that you see in the world, in your own life and relationships and people that you know. Um, asking the question, how should we understand that? How should we think about the implications of that in our life and, and for whether we are really doing okay and going to be okay? Uh, we're going to move tonight from looking just broadly out at the world to what Paul does as he moves to Romans 2, is he kind of takes that perspective and says, like, all these problems in the world, which he's already said, are, are rooted in the idea that we have not acknowledged God and we put something else there in place of him. Um, and living our lives to try to make something else satisfy us is, is the root of just all kinds of problems that you see in the world. And he takes that big perspective and he says... And you too. This is not just a problem out there in the world. This is in you specifically. Um, Before I get into that, though, I just want to take a moment and think about how that feels sometimes. Because I know that that can feel not great. Um, So take a little detour here. And one of the things that I find in in parenting is that a, a a difficulty is trying to help my kids understand all the things that are going on. One of the difficulties in that is that there's usually like seven different things going on, particularly in moments where, you know, there's, there's difficulty. We're doing something other than just having a ton of fun right now. Um, there's usually a bunch of things going on. And, you know, not only do I have to pick, okay, of the fact that you're tired, your heart's doing this, I did this, and this is the situation, which one of these do I even want to begin to help you see? It's also difficult to explain any of those concepts to a two- and a three-year-old is what I have. So, um, but one of the things I found is, diff- is helpful in trying to explain um, in correcting my kids. Because uh, I don't, in correction, just want to give them a list of things that they have to do. I don't just want them to learn, you know, in situation A, respond like this. Uh, I don't, not just a list of things. I want them to, to kind of go a level below that and understand the heart issues that are going on in them and in people around them. And one of the things that's been helpful in that is, I think Frankie actually came up with this phrase for my son to tell him, um, what's going on with you right now? The reason you did that, the reason you're having problems is, is that there's a monster in your heart. He really likes monsters. Um, there's a monster in your heart, and, and right now, the way you're feeling, it's like that monster is stomping and shaking and storming around. Um, and, and she just used that as an example one time, and he really, he got it. Like, you could see the connections happening in his mind, like, it did feel like that. Um, and so that's pretty helpful for him to kind of slow down in the moment and understand, oh, like, there's something happening in here that's affecting the way I'm in, uh, interacting out there. But, but, so why do I do that? Why do we, why do I tell my three-year-old that, that he is a monster, basically, right? That he's got a monster in his heart, right? That can feel like, you know, why would you come and, and give these negative thoughts to your kid? Well, the reason I do that is because I want him to see a problem that he might not be aware of because I hope for better for him. Because I, I know something about that monster in his heart. Because I feel the same in my own heart. And I know that when I let that monster in my heart, the, the frustration or the anger 
or just being tired at the end of a day affect the way I, I interact with people, that destroys things. That hurts relationships. That steals joy that I could have. That makes my day objectively worse. And I want him to understand that for himself. I want him to learn how to not listen to that and to do something better. So I bring in an observation to help him understand something about his own heart because I want him to act better and to experience better than he would otherwise. And when we encounter sort of things that I would call just judgment in the Bible, where you feel like some sort of judgment is coming out of the words you're reading in the Bible, that's the heart behind that too. That the Bible wants you to see something about yourself that you may not be aware of, but not just so that you feel terrible, it's because it wants something better for you. And the text we're going to get into tonight can feel that way, and I recognize that that judgment is is something that we kind of react against in culture. Right? Not, not actually everywhere, maybe. There are actually increasing areas, I think. It's interesting to watch that where we're more okay with judgment. I think of something like the, the Me Too movement. Right? Like we're pretty okay with judging in certain categories now. Uh, and I think increasingly okay. It's something I, I'd be curious if I need even to caveat like this in 20 years, kind of what the trajectory looks like. But in general, today... I would say we still react pretty strongly against any sort of external judgment where someone comes in and says, you should not be this way. You should not do things this way. Um, You should not tell me how to live or dress or act or identify. All of those are my choice. And that's the supreme thing. If anything that comes from the outside telling me you can't make that choice there's a strong and, I think, natural pushback that we learn from the world around us. But I think some of that is is justified. There are some places where I think the world has rightly observed the judgment that's coming from these external sources is, is wrongly motivated. And there can be a wrong motivation in judgment, right? Like in history, we, there, people have judged for reasons of, of trying to preserve a, a sort of system or way of life that benefits them. So we might come up with, with judgments about um, races to say that, that this race is, is inferior in some way or worse in some way and, and therefore should not be allowed to rule or judge or, judge or determine how to live for themselves and thus justify things like American slavery. So there, there are ways that we've, we've, you see judgment in the world that's, that's trying to preserve a beneficial way of life. You could see this in politics, right? Not just on people that maybe are, do have legitimate moral questions about them, but, but just about the other side, right? It's not just a difference of opinion or a difference of how to solve the problem. They're just wrong for thinking that thing. And if I can convince you that they are morally bankrupt, you're more likely to be on my side and I'll win. Like that's one way that judgment works, motivated by, by selfish desire for some sort of gain. That, that, that is a legitimate critique of judgment. Or just trying to feel superior. I see this a lot in parenting, actually, where people are trying to figure out what the heck am I supposed to do with these kids. Like There's like a million options for things and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I think I'm going to pick this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to train them this way and I'm going to do this sort of food and we're going to do this sort of discipline. 
and then they're just trying to make themselves feel like they made the right choices, so they get a little judgmental about anyone who makes any other choice that seems like a critique of the choice you made. Um, there are ways that we, we kind of judge people because we're trying to justify the decisions we've made about the food that we should eat, the company that we should keep, what, what we should be, uh, what major we've chosen, things like that where we're trying to prop ourselves up internally. That'd be another bad motivation for judgment. I think these are actually what Jesus critiques in Matthew 7. When you talk about judgment, this is the passage that probably comes to most people's mind. Jesus says, judge not. And that's all anybody knows about that passage because that's, that's it. That's the end of the, what else do you need to know? Jesus said, judge not, we're done. But actually, Jesus didn't stop talking there. That's there's a, the beginning of a, a larger argument where he, this is the full passage of what he says. He says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's he really critiquing there? It's, it's wrongly motivated, trying to elevate yourself, make yourself feel superior and say, like, look at all these people with all these problems. Let me come and help. He's saying, slow down, recognize you've got the same problems. Like, we're all on the same playing field here. But at the end of the day, when you recognize that, when you deal with the sin in your own life and recognize you have the same problems, maybe even more than other people, it is then okay to go and try to help them with that same problem. At the very end, Jesus does say, you, you can go comment on that speck, but don't make yourself feel like you're superior. Don't be motivated out of trying to prop yourself up. But he doesn't actually prohibit judging in the end as a humble spirit to care for that person. Later in, in Matthew 18, he, he tells us this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Those are awkward situations, right? You're going to go and say, Dylan, you did this thing to me the other day. You really shouldn't have done that. It really hurt. Like, that's an awkward conversation. That can feel like judgment. Me coming in and telling you, don't do, you should not have done that. But why do I do it? Not so I can make Dylan feel terrible. It's not because... I need to make sure nobody ever says anything like that about me ever again because I'll look silly. It's because I care about Dylan. I care about our relationship. I want to restore that relationship it's because I, I hope for good for him. That's the heart behind judgment. When Paul tells the church in Galatians 6, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. Don't think you're better. Don't think you're, you're the great guys and there's these few people that are going to fail. But it is okay. It is right. It is commanded to go and tell them that they have fallen. To come and tell someone who may not agree with you, may not receive that super well, you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. But the motivation behind it is restoring them. I want you to see a problem that you may not be aware of because I hope for better for you. 
That's the heart behind judgment in the Bible. And that's the heart behind the passage that we're going to look at in Romans 2 tonight. So let's open up uh, Romans 2. We're going to read most of it, start in verse 1. And remember, what, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's going from the problem that he's just talked about. The, the sin and the issues and the symptoms we see in the world rooted in the, the root cause of our not acknowledging God as God. And he's turning now to each of us and saying, you too are included in this. And he's going to make a case to show that to us. So starting in Romans 1 and 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you judge, you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Pause right there for a second. I want to put a pin in that idea. um, Because I recognize Paul here is going to assume that we all agree the judgment of God rightly falls on people who practice sin. He doesn't argue for that in this passage because he assumes that his first century, mostly Jewish uh, and even not, context is going to agree with that statement. I recognize that we probably have more questions about that statement that we could spend a while digging into. I'm not going to dig into them tonight, but when I finish this series in Romans 3, I am going to dig into that a little bit. So put a pin in that if you've got questions about that. Um, Always feel free to come talk to me, but I am going to get to that in a few weeks. So, keep reading. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." So there's a lot of things maybe going on in here, but the basic point that Paul is making is he's saying all of these problems, you who see, you who judge and see all these problems in the world, in chaos, in um, pain, and in people hurting one another in the world, you who see those problems, you do the same thing. That unrightness that you see in the world, you have the same unrightness in you. And the fact that you see it and still do it is your condemnation. Now, he's assuming, he probably that you agree, that there's unrightness, there's problems in the world. I just said he assumes that, that we know God rightly judges those who are unright. But if you see, notice his tone in here. He's kind of setting up an argument. He's building some momentum because he's anticipating that there's going to be some resistance to the idea that we, each of us, have that same unrightness in us. Right? He's, he's sort of gearing up here. He's laying out his charges. And now he's going to move to prove that case, that we too are included in that unrighteousness. Because I think his audience and we too might object at being called the bad guy. Who, are, who is he to say that we're included in this? And what he's going to do is he's going to show us two ways that we commonly hide our sin from ourselves. Two reasons that you might think you're not included in the group that we would call unright, those who are receiving God's condemnation. He's going to try to show us two different ways where we might not 
see that. So, skip down to verse 12. This is the first way that he's trying to show us that we might hide our sin from ourselves. So he picks it up in verse 12. He says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. So the first group of people that he has in view here, the first way we might think that, that we're not rightly included in the unright condemned group, is that we might not agree on the standard by which we're judged. Right, he's got in view here the Gentiles, those who don't have the law. And, and there might be people who would come and say, how, how can you say that I'm judged by a standard I'm not even sure applies to me? Right, how, many you, how many of you know that, there, that that would be a common category for people today? That in our increasingly pluralistic society, there would be people who say, how can you guys say that your standard, that I'm judged by, your, who are you to say what standard I'm judged by at all? Right, there's a ton of things we disagree with on where we should draw the line between what's okay and what's not. What kind of things should be allowed to watch on TV, acceptable to put before our eyes? What kind of things, uh, substances should be legal? What should be acceptable? Right, just pick your topic. There's a ton of things we could talk about where people disagree about what rules should apply. And in a setting like that, how can we say who is and who isn't in the unright group, in the condemned group? What, what standard do we get to apply to that? Paul's argument here is, listen, take whatever standard you want. You yourself know that you're not living up to whatever standard. You pick your standard. Right? He says, uh, even though they, they, the Gentiles don't have the law, they show the law is written on their hearts. Right? First of all, whatever standard you have, you have a standard. Right? Like you have your own ideas about what is right and what is wrong. There's nobody that doesn't have that. And actually, if you look across history and if you, if you polled people on not just focused on the, the issues we debate all the time, but sort of some basic fundamental moral rules, would be pretty consistent. If you look across history, the basic what is right, what is wrong, we might disagree on where the edges of that are, but we, we don't disagree on where the center, what's, what's generally applaudable and acceptable, and what's generally wrong. C.S. Lewis calls this the, the moral law that you can kind of see written across people in history. And he's talking about this, it, he gives some examples. One of them he said, men have differed as regards to what people you ought to be unselfish to. Whether it was only your family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. But selfishness has never been admired. Right, so exactly 
what your group should be defined as and your responsibility to different groups. We, we have differing ideas on that. But the general idea of selflessness versus selfishness, we're all going to agree on that. So Paul's saying, pick whatever standard you want. You know you don't keep it. You know, whatever standard, whatever you think is right or wrong, you don't have to take my standard. Take your own standard that's written on your heart that you know, that you might apply to other people you're looking at, and tell me, do you live up to that? Or do you know that there are places in your own life that you are not doing what even you would say is the right thing to do? The law that's written on your heart, you break that. We can hide our sin from ourselves by arguing about what exactly the rules should be. Like, that may not be sin. Maybe this isn't a problem. I'm okay because I think this is the way we should think about it. But, But at the end of the day, don't we all know that there are times and moments and motivations and things in our heart that cause us to do, to try to justify things we know we really should not be doing? We really wouldn't call that right. It's just what I wanted to do in that moment. Christians can do this too. We can, we can debate about uh, what things are okay for us to put before our eyes or to put in our bodies or what settings it is or is not okay to be in. But, but at the end of the day, we usually know whether that was a right choice or an unright choice. What did it do to your heart? What, what was the feelings or the motivations that led you to want to make that decision? Could you, in the moment that you chose that decision, turn and thank God for the thing that he had given you right there, the, the thing that you were able to experience, the setting that you were in? Or, or would something in your heart want to hide? We know, most of the time, whether decisions are right or not. Paul actually says later in Romans that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin for that reason. If you did it and you weren't sure, that's kind of a problem all by itself. Maybe the thing would have been fine, but you thought it might not be, and you chose to do it anyway. That's the problem. It's not where you draw the line. It's the, it's the motivations in your heart. Moving on, the second way that we hide sin from ourselves. Paul identifies it like this. He says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth... You can, I mean, you feel the setup right there, right? Like you, <laughs> that's, that's definitely hyperbole. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking it. Paul's sort of saving his harshest critiques and tones in this for 
uh, people who would hide their sin behind thinking that they know what is right. What, what do I mean by that? I, I think I do this. I, I was thinking about where I see this in my life, and I can, I can see several examples. The one I, I thought of is, is, is it something that we talk about a lot, Frankie and I at home, is, is what hospitality might look like. Um, it's a kind of a, a new thought for how people can, it's a word people are kind of using for how we can serve those around us, love our neighbors, is, is to try to get really good at practicing hospitality. She's reading a book about it right now that uh, we like to talk about, and I've listened to some podcasts on it, and um, I've talked about it with some people, and so there's a lot of thoughts I have about this idea of hospitality in my life. And if I'm not careful, I can begin to feel that because I've thought about it and read about it and talked about it, that I, that itself makes me right. That, that's my righteousness, is the ideas and the thoughts that I have in my mind. But that's not hospitality. Thinking about it, talking about it, that's, that doesn't do anything. The measure of my hospitality is how much do I serve the people God brings into my life when I have opportunity, especially when it costs me something. That's the only measure in this deal of hospitality that really matters. I think we are most likely to do this on things on that we think and think about a lot. I don't know, maybe there's a, a tension in your heart around an issue that um, either you want to do something or you're, you're trying to figure out what, what you should do, this problem that you keep having, so you think about it a lot. The tension in you creates the thoughts and the discussion, but the thoughts and the discussion sort of relieve the tension. And then, and then you're done. There's no more tension. There's no more motivation. You didn't actually do anything. You just thought about it a lot. And that's no good. <laughs> that doesn't do anything. Paul gives some generic examples here, sort of those, those for-all-time, apply-to-all scenario examples. I, I tried to think of what would be some settings that would apply more to us today. And so um, I think if Paul got up here and, and sort of repeated his list to this context, what he might say is, um, you who hate fake news, do you love to listen to the latest gossip? Are you careful how you speak about people who aren't present? You who talk about welfare reform, are you quick to be a neighbor and meet the needs of those the Lord has placed in your life, even and especially when they can't do anything for you? You who talk about inclusiveness and acceptance, do you work to welcome those who have strong beliefs you disagree with or who are just socially awkward and require much from you? You who wish we could all just get along, are you quick to forgive and to rebuild relationships with those that you feel have hurt or offended you? Do your thoughts about those things match the actions you have in specific, real scenarios with specific, real, difficult, complicated people and relationships? Or are you hiding your sin from yourself simply by talking about what is right a lot. Why do we talk about this? Why do we, why do we bring up areas of sin in our life? Why is this something that Christians have to make a major part of our theme? 
do we have to talk about this to people that aren't Christians? You ever had somebody ask you the question, um, do you think I'm going to hell? What do you say in that moment? Right? Let, I mean, yes, I'll talk to you never. I mean, like that's a, like, that's a tough question, and it feels really judgmental. Any answer you give feels either like you're selling short what you really mean, what you really believe, or, or you're, you're just judging that person. Why do we have to bring this up? I think it's helpful to remember the goal behind these judgments. They're not to make people feel bad. They're not just to, to say, I'm better than you. Or we, we have judgment in the Bible because we want people to see real problems. Then honestly, they probably already know. Your friends coming to you asking you, do you think I'm going to hell, probably already has an awareness that there are some things in their life they wish weren't there. That there are some things that they would not want you to know about. That there are some things they suspect God is not happy with. It's probably not news to come in and say, God doesn't love everything about you and your life. But we don't just say that as the end. The, The goal of saying that is that there's better for you. The Bible is identifying problems in your life because it's going to come in and give you hope and a solution. The answer to that question needs to include judgment. It needs to include the idea that, yes, the Bible does say that you and I and all of us are sinners before God, that he is not pleased with that. He doesn't treat that lightly. But it also needs to include 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ is... Jesus came to save sinners. That's, that's, there's a lot more you probably say in that answer, but you need at least those two pieces. That yes, there are problems, but yes, there is hope. And to us, why do I come up with lists of, of areas that I think probably are sin issues for all of us? It's not just because I want you to leave feeling bad about those. <laughs> I do want you to wonder, are there areas in your heart where you're hiding sin from yourself, either by, by talking about it a lot or by th- wondering just what rules do or don't have to apply to this? I do want you to know that you have a deceitful heart that is actively trying to hide sin from you. The monster in my son's heart and my heart is the same in yours. But I don't want you to leave feeling hopeless. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you. He died to make you like him. That we will be his image. That we will come to reflect his glory. And I know that sin sucks. The result of sin in your life is that it will destroy things. It's not fun to... Listen to that monster in your heart and let it steal your joy. I bring up these issues. I I want you to consider what sin you have because that's the areas where your life can be better than it is now. Where you can become someone who is characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit God has put in each one of us who believe in Him. And I want that to grow. I want you to pull out the sin in your life so that that can grow. 
And you can have all the fullness that God has for you. But the first step in that is you have to see where are areas of sin in your life. Where can your life be better than it is now? Father, I thank you for your word, Father. I thank you that you, like a good father, are long-suffering with me, that you show me where my heart is small, where I am ungenerous, where I, I don't see what better you have to offer. I just want to be content with my uh, selfish pursuits, with my um, trying to make myself seem great in my own eyes, and I don't turn to the, the great fullness of life that you would have for me, Father. I thank you that you show me where I can improve and that you walk with me in all of those areas to make me into the image of your Son. That you will not be satisfied with me until I am full of your Spirit and that all the flesh in me has died. Lord, I pray that you would just give us wisdom, that you would continue to give us hope, to give us joy, to fill us with your goodness. Um, Even tonight as we sit and consider where in our lives we might need to, want to, hope to improve.